give us an opportunity to make you develop our own opinion, you know? I mean, how dare we? How dare we develop <laughs> our own opinions? Hi everyone, it's Ria, the host of Femme on Film, where a guest and I talk about films made by women, starring women, for women. These are films that have often been overlooked or unfairly derided, or where female filmmakers haven't been given the same chances as their male counterparts. And sometimes it's just a chance to talk about films that we love that happen to be made by women. If you like fun, insightful and patriarchy smashing chats about film, come and have a listen. Femon Film is part of the Comics and Motion Network and can be found on all your podcast apps. So come and join us. Smash the patriarchy. <laughs> we are the Pop Gorillas, and this is the month where we review the top grossing blockbuster from each year, starting in 1989 and ending in 2021, to see if it holds up. Up first. Batman 89, released June 23rd, 1989, from Warner Brothers Pictures, of course, starring Michael Keaton and Jack Nicholson. It ended up being the number one top-grossing movie of 1989 at $251,188,924, oddly specific. It beat out Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade by quite a bit. Indiana Jones and Last Crusade came in number two at $197 million, and believe it or not, Lethal Weapon 2... 50 million behind that at 147 million. Batman 89. Does it hold up? Of course it fucking holds up. It's the Batman movie that matters most. I love, I'm on record of saying Batman 66 is perfect. It is my second favorite Batman movie. I love it. It is behind this one, though, as my favorite Batman movie. When this came out, it was a big risk. Nobody knew what was going to happen. Nobody thought... Um, Oh, yeah, yeah. Superhero movies. Let's do that. I mean, Superman franchise kind of fizzled. Superman 4. I know there's a few people who love it, but for the most part, everybody fucking hates Superman 4. And so there just wasn't a call for it. I mean, Marvel was selling their shit off to everybody. There was Roger Corman's ended up doing that Fantastic Four movie. I mean, like, really, superhero movies were low. Nobody wanted superhero movies as a Batman nerd pre-Batman 89, you know, it was it was a tough sled. It was hard to find stuff you wanted with your kitschy, cool shit on it. And um, and then Batman 89 happened. And then by the end of that summer, fucking you couldn't turn the corner. I mean, gas stations were selling Batman hats. Fact. So um, that was the cultural phenomenon that it was. But does it hold up? 100% it holds up. I love Michael Keaton as Batman. Nicholson knew the assignment. I do, you know, look, say what you want about Kim Bassinger and as Vicky Vale. She knew what she was doing. She she played it well. Robert Wool's character, the um, addition as Allie Knox. Um, it's actually a shame he didn't continue on in the other movies. Uh, but, you know, still good. Still good. This bangs. It, it holds up. It's beautiful. I love it. Music, of course, that you're hearing underneath. Danny Elfman, you magnificent bastard. Uh, without a doubt, Batman 1989 holds up. Up next. I get to review Ghost. So these blockbusters, they take place between the first Friday in May and Labor Day weekend. Um, So that's how we've figured it out. I don't know if that makes sense to anybody. Doesn't really to me. But anyway, I get to talk Ghost, released in 1990, and it had a total worldwide earning of 
505 million. Well done, Ghost. Lovely. So I haven't watched Ghost since I was a teenager, so not for a really long time. I'm talking early teens as well. I can't ever remember being that blown away by it, apart from thinking that Demi Moore and Patrick Swayze were super cute and Whippy Goldberg is hilarious. So I didn't know what to expect when watching it again. And I have to say that this film is so ridiculously watchable. I would happily watch it again now. Like if it popped up on TV in an evening, I'd end up watching the whole thing. I mean, or even during the day, just like whenever. Um, Demi Moore is lovely as Molly. She's adorable and she's doing good work in in a in quite a thankless role, really. You know, she just has to sit around and cry a little bit um, and look forlorn. But actually, I just think she's really lovely in this role. And obviously, you know, there's something about Demi Moore. Why why does she not do more work? She's great. Anyway, but as always, it's Swayze who steals the show. As let's be honest, he always tends to do in whatever he's in apart from Dirty Dancing, which is one of the greatest films ever made. And it's not Swayze, who's the star of that film. Anyway, he's sweet and charming. He's also smug and annoying. He's incredibly vulnerable at times. And he just plays the character so thoughtfully. You know, it, it seems like they're walking along and talking and he's, he doesn't know about love and marriage. And he's, he's the one who's nervous about move, moving in together and... And he imbues it with such, such vulnerability. Yet in the next se- second, he's he's fighting a mugger and being ridiculously aggressive and chasing after them, even though Molly's asking him to stop and you know being aggressive man. And it's just well, so well done. And that's the thing about this film as well. This film is it's you know it's a drama romance, but it's got complex characters. It's got more complex characters than we expect from drama romances, anyway. Um, so the film in general is such a weird mix of you know, horror, drama, comedy, romance. It's quite gothic. And yet it all works. Like I said, it's just so watchable. And it's not perfect. It's often very over- overly melodramatic. We all know what I'm talking about, pottery scene. But actually, the, the core of this film, modern romances, could learn a lot from this. I think it would be worth for some writers to go back and watch Ghost and go, actually... This is the sort of combination of real world characters and drama that we should be putting together. Up next, I am very lucky. So I get Terminator 2, Judgment Day. Yes! Oh my God, so happy to be reviewing this film. This review is just going to be me talking random rubbish, not actually saying anything about the film, because... Who needs to say anything about Terminator 2 Judgment Day? I have seen this film more times than it is possible to count. I didn't even need to watch it again. I mean, I didn't need to, but why wouldn't I? This film is everything. I am not going to be able to shine anything new on this film that hasn't already been said. You know, it is the pinnacle of action sci-fi and explores so many interesting complex themes. Motherhood, fatherhood, family, chosen family, one of my favourite subjects. Humanity, compassion, femininity, masculinity, love. Ah, so good. And all of the actors seem to have been made for this film. You know, I'm not going to have anything new to say about any of them, but perfect. This is Arnie. This is 
Schwarzenegger's best film ever. I'm happy for debate about that, but this is what I'm sticking with. We could do some sort of argument against each other. That would be really fun about what his best film is. This would be my choice. Linda Hamilton as Sarah Connor. There's nothing new to say about her in this role, apart from, you know, this and Ripley is the start of that strong female character that's been it's been twisted so it's all about ah she does kung fu and has fights and ugh and all of that sort of stuff that is not a strong female character what makes sarah connor so strong is her love for her son is her complete and utter mission to try and save the world so she may have muscle she may have been working out for judgment day she may have been you know doing all of this stuff learning training with guns whatever but it's her humanity it's the fact that she wants to save humanity it's the love that she has for kyle reese that continues to carry on throughout this film she's such an interesting and complex character and james cameron is so good at that sort of thing we've just talked i've just talked about ripley aliens he does the exact same with ripley he's such a brilliant director and storyteller and i think this film shows that it shows why we all go and see his films say what you want about things like avatar and whatever but that man knows how to do a damn story and we see it in this and you know if you don't get a tear in your eye at arnie at the end with a sum up what is wrong with you why are you frozen and cold inside up next i got the luck of the draw 1992 Batman Re- I Return and Batman Returns. It was released on June 18th, 1992, and it came in number one at 162 million. Did not do as well as the first one, but enough to be the top grossing film of the year. It beat out Home Alone 2, Lethal Weapon 3, Sister Act, Aladdin, Wayne's World, Basic Instinct, A League of Their Own, The Bodyguard, and The Hand That Rocks the Cradle. That's your top 10 movies of 1992 with Michael Keaton's back, but this time, He's got three baddies to fight. I know everybody thinks it's two, but don't forget, Christopher Walken's Shrek is in there. So good. Um, obviously, Danny DeVito playing the role he was born to play as the Penguin. He's great. It's, and then, of course, Michelle Pfeiffer as Catwoman. She's the best Catwoman of all time. The end. Period. End of discussion. Stop talking. Eartha Kitt's a close second, in my personal opinion, but just because she was my first Catwoman. Um, and boy, now, as some some would say. Um, what do we say about Batman Returns? The number one blockbuster from 1989, and they're like, follow it up. And so we're like, okay, Tim Burton, instead of doing the thing that everybody does in a follow-up, which is more of the same, I mean, he gives us a lot of the same, the Danny Elfman score is still there, the setting is bleak, you know, all this stuff. He gives us a lot of villains. He makes this Batman, once again, and and none of the Burtonverse movies is Batman the star of his own film. And in this one, it's even even less, you know, um, he even has almost less screen time than probably anybody else. He is top billing in this one, where Nicholson was top billing in the first one, but Keaton is top billing here, but it's not really his movie. It's a villain's movie, and it just is, here's what happens in Gotham three years after Batman exists. And so, uh, there's that commentary and then it ends with a penguin funeral and i know it's spoiler free but come on if you haven't seen the penguin funeral then i I don't even know what to say um sorry if i spoiled that penguin fucking funeral and the duckies oh my god what a mess this movie is but i love it for the mess that it is it knows exactly what it is it um it's just it's like camp 
camp to a thousand. So when people get mad at what Schumacher does later, you shouldn't be mad at what Schumacher does later because this movie sets the template. Schumacher saw this and was like, oh, I see the trajectory we're going. We're going to camp the fuck out of it. So camp it up, baby. Camp it up. Love it. Batman Returns totally holds up. I have been getting some absolute bangers. I've previously reviewed Terminator 2 Judgment Day. Thank you very much. That was awesome. And now I get Jurassic Park. What do we need to know about Jurassic Park? Nothing. Everybody knows it all. It was released in 1993 and had a total worldwide earning of over one billion. One billion. It deserves more. It's probably made way more than that since, isn't it? Um, so, Jurassic Park. What is there to say? We all know that this film is actually amazing and we all know that it holds up. Who doesn't watch it now and have their mind blown by the practical and visual effects? Who doesn't fall in love with Sam Neill, Laura Dern and Jeff Goldblum as Dr. Alan Grant, Ellie Sattler and Dr. Ian Malcolm? And come on, we even all end up loving the kids in the end. The wonder of this film still holds up, as it always does every single time you watch it. Everything is well thought out. The pacing is excellent. The film is bloody terrifying. It's funny. And yet it's somehow believable, even though it's about dinosaurs being brought back to life. When watching, I kept on thinking, oh, yeah, yeah, this is my favourite part. And then two minutes later, I'd be like, oh, no, shit, actually, this is my favourite part. The whole thing is my favourite part. It's so amazing. I am not a fan of the most recent Jurassic films. We'll come to that in a few days weeks or so um and one of the reasons is i feel that they i mean they lack the brilliance of the original jurassic park but also there's a lack of character development in them and that's not absent from this film the characters in jurassic park all work each of them are well-rounded you understand things about them through the writing and the actors performances overall jurassic park is a love story well i mean actually multiple love stories isn't it really whether it's the love people have for their work love competency or each other it's about friendships family chosen family another thing that's coming up we talked i talked about that in terminator 2 judgment day i love things that are about chosen family and anyone who has listened to me talk before knows that it's it's my favorite kind of love story is a non-romantic one Although I could probably write a whole dissertation about Dr. Sattler and Dr. Grant, who have one of the healthiest relationships committed to screen. I know there's some controversy around the age gap now, and it's not aged well, but holy hell, Laura Dern feels like an absolute equal in this film. So at least we didn't have a gross old man preying on a young woman dynamic. I'm over that. Let's not do that anymore. And actually, speaking of Dr. Sattler, even as a kid, I remember being inspired by her. And I still am as an adult. She is so smart. She's competent. Hello, love competency. Uh, I bloody well love someone who's good at their job. She's tough, but not in the modern strong woman trope. She's confident in her own abilities through the entire way. She's like, yep, I can do this. Or this is my knowledge. This is my expertise throughout the whole film. And we know from the start that she isn't afraid to speak up. She doesn't shy away from her own brilliance and she absolutely holds her own against everyone else. She's surrounded by men in this whole film and her career, right? She's clearly surrounded by men. But she she has her knowledge, she has her skills, she has her strength to speak up. But she's also funny and sweet. And she loves Dr. Grant openly. She's she's vulnerable and caring. And she's just she's just brilliant and Laura Dern who is always fantastic plays her perfectly this is such an iconic role for for me it had such an effect on me as a young woman and still does now as a grown-up woman 
and watch this film and I'm like I still want to be her I need to be more like her in meetings I need to be more like her in asking for things that I want but also being comfortable and showing my vulnerabilities she's just amazing so as the world continues to be on fire I think there's only one way to end this review dinosaurs eat man woman inherits the earth up next Forrest Gump released between the first Friday of May and Labor Day weekend in 1994 it went on to achieve a total worldwide gross of 677.9 million, according to Box Office Mojo. Not only was Gump a giant box office success, but it also accrued six Oscars, for what that's worth, at the 67th Annual Academy Awards in 1995, including Best Picture, Director and Actor, over, in my opinion, much more deserving nominees such as Chris Show, The Shawshank Redemption and Pulp Frickin' Fiction. I think you can guess which way this review is going to go. I'm quite sure I'm in the minority, but I really don't like Forrest Gump. So, strap yourself in. This could get controversial. I am inherently cynical by nature, so... Anything mawkish and whimsical does tend to rub me the wrong way. I hold my hands up. I'm just built this way. That said, I also do try to skew towards and find something positive to say, if I can, when considering the merits of any creative product I have consumed. Here though, I am struggling. The acting, for instance. It's beyond mannered. It's histrionic. It's caricature rather than character. Tom Hanks is hammy. Gary Sinise is stagey. McKelty Williamson is worse. They should all have, anachronistically, heeded the advice of Kurt Lazarus. Never go full. The only one who comes out alright is the always tight Robin Wright. Then there's the comedy for another. At least, I think it's trying to be funny. For me, the best way to exemplify the level profit is the running joke, wherein a line of present narration is repeated shortly thereafter in flashback actuality. This repeats throughout the movie and quickly wears thin, the same way a toddler repeating a surface level joke over and 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 over similarly does. How about the drama? Forget their cute pop culture touches, as they're ultimately throw away and add up to nothing. What is truly troubling is the clear propaganda subtext and conservative politics. Forrest is a yes man, never questioning orders he is given, nor pausing to consider the implications of following them. He's rewarded for this throughout his life, whilst, by contrast, the counterculture Jenny is abused and judged and traumatised until, eventually, she is punished for living a life outside the red state expectations that one should follow in order to maximise your opportunity to achieve the mythical American dream. Speaking of which, Forrest is variously depicted in this as a football star, war hero, national celebrity, shrimp boat captain, college graduate, Apple investor, Elvis influencer and cult cross-country runner. 
It is ridiculous. I call bullshit. And in light of this rewatch, I suggest it's time we retire Mary Sue and replace it with Forrest Gump. To make sure I say something positive, so this isn't a totally one-sided bias review, the visual effects do largely hold up, other than the precursor to Superman's CGI mouth, whilst the production design is truly immersive and believable. That's it. That's your lot. The film runs at 2 hours 16 minutes, but seems twice as long as that though. It leaves me sleepy, rather than the desired weepy. That's all I have to say about that. Up next, Batman Forever. Released between the first Friday in May and Labor Day weekend in 1995, it went on to achieve a total worldwide gross of 336.5 million, according to Box Office Mojo. Riddle me this. Is it wrong to retroactively place blame for the overly camp and pantsomine comic tone of Forever solely at the feet of Jim Carrey? His style was stellar at this point in the 90s, and it's clear Schumacher and the WB execs built their gauche and gaudy spin on the Cape Crusader around him and his OTT performance style as Enigma, aka the Riddler, rather than Val Kilmer's Bat. In my formative, more forgiving film watching years, this didn't either occur to me nor bother me. It does now. Carey isn't the only overacting issue, mind. It's across the board, despite the cast list for this, on paper, arguably being mostly class. Kilmer, Tommy Lee Jones, Carey, Nicole Kidman, Michael Goff, Ed Begley Jr., Debbie Mazar, Drew Barrymore. Their performances, without argument, are not class. So mannered are their performances, they make the 60s camp classic cast of Adam West, Burt Ward, Cesar Romero, Burgess Meredith, Stafford Rep, Frank Gorshin Natal look positively underplayed. In my opinion, one of the issues that befell Big Screen Batman, pre-Chris Nolan era, was a lack of focus on the titular character and his everyday billionaire playboy philanthropist alter ego, Bruce Wayne. It was all about the villains. This film was the perfect opportunity to right that wrong. Batman could have battled a cold and calculating two-face, caped and cowled, whilst Bruce Wayne could have intellectually duked it out with Edward Digma, decked out in his sharpest business suits. Two villains, two plot lines, two worlds. This could have culminated in a crossover and a cliffhanger where Nigma's psyche is fractured and the Riddler emerges as a dominant persona ready to be the lead villain in a subsequent sequel. Alas, this was not to be. Instead, what we got was an overly designed and busy film that nevertheless feels deathly dull and emotionally empty for its overlong two-hour runtime. What we got was a mid-twenties Chris O'Donnell as a whiny and bitch-slappable side dick. What we got was a poor imitation of Jack Nicholson's 89 Joker in duplicate. If the evidence was ever in doubt that these two rogue representations are reprehensible, you need look no further than Aaron Eckhart in The Dark Knight and Paul Dano in The Batman. They're just another level. What we got was a threequel that made crazy money, 
the first film to earn 20 million in a day. Hence, we got more of the same. Worse of the same. Nadir of the same, two years later. All things considered, having rewatched this twice now in recent years, I'd much rather listen to Kiss from a Rose on a Loop 35 times than sit through this again. For me, from this point forward, this is Batman Faux Never. I'm back. It's 1996, and the number one film released on July 2nd, 1996, is Independence Day. Pom pom pom, grossing $306 million, beating out Twister, Mission Impossible, The Rock, Independence Day. This is the movie that turned Will Smith into a superstar. Does Will Smith have charisma to spare? Yes. Are he and Goldblum awesome together? Yes. Is it the best buddy action comedy ever? No, it's not. But is it fun? Fuck yes. It's super fun. Um, Bill Pullman is the president. Uh, Randy Quaid is the crazy guy that he turned into. That was to talk about fucking life imitating art. Yeesh. Anyway, um, here's the thing. This movie is not good. It does not hold up. It is jingoistic bullshit beautifully done cinematic it's 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 the movie that is made for summer blockbusters right this i get it this is a summer fucking blockbuster it knew what it was it knew when it was released it knew it knew it knew here's the thing about it um it can go fuck itself it's just absurd and i know will smith is the star so you can't just say it's a bunch of white dudes saving the world but it's still a bunch of dudes and American dudes, most importantly. And this is just so jingoistic. And it's like, just to pretend, like, here's the thing. Cabin in the Woods is a, it's, listen, I'm going to compare Independence Day to Cabin in the Woods, so buckle up. The thing about Cabin in the Woods is we learn that all around the world on the day of the Cabin in the Woods fiasco that's happening, all around the world, the same thing is happening. And we see it. Yes, we are focusing on our American kids, but we know around the world this thing is happening. We see it. And we also know that that's kind of happening here. But of course, who can do it? Who can beat it? Only the Americans, because nobody else in the world can do what the Americans do, because America. And I just don't like it. I don't think it holds up. I'm sure people are going to berate me for this. At me, please feel free. Um, I just I just think it's bad. I think it's jingoistic crap. And I'll never, ever watch it again, turns out. I understand. I never saw the sequel, actually. Um, But I understand why that failed. Uh, Because this bullshit, if it was anything like this, there's no way anybody wants to see that shit. I mean, I guess not say anybody. There's plenty of people who still want to see that. Independence Day sucks. The next year, I just did. Hey, it's me. The next day. Hello. This year, 1997, Men in Black. Once again, released the July 4th weekend, but it was July 1st. Once again, starring Will Smith. Way better. What a better film. Men in fucking black. It grossed $250 million, beating the Jurassic Park, The Lost World. The thing that I like about Men in Black is it does not overstay it. Welcome. It knows what it is. It gets in. It has fun. It gets the fuck out. The, the um, best line in the movie is, why not tell everybody? People are smart. And uh, Tommy, that's what Will Smith says to Tommy Lee Jones. Tommy Lee Jones says something to the effect of, a person is smart. People are dumb. And it's and he goes on to this whole rant about how people, as a mass, do stupid shit. And so in the midst of this like silly, fun science fiction romp, where Vincent D'Onofrio, as the bad guy, is just owning it, is this really brilliant look at 
the way we don't accept things. So there's, for everything Men in Black is, in all three movies, um, all four movies, I mean, I liked the fourth one fine. It was a little less, it didn't land the, the bus as it were, as I'll mix my metaphors, as well as the first three did. But all three of them have these emotional residents. And this first one, that's it. I mean, we know what's happening. We know that he's getting ready to retire and we know he's looking for his replacement. We don't know that in the moment. We know that at the end of the movie. But so, but when you know that and then you watch this movie over and over, you're like, oh, here's the breadcrumbs. And I, I'm, not, I'm on record of saying I don't think Tommy Lee Jones is a very good actor. I think he's always playing Tommy Lee Jones, which is why when Brolin shows up in the third one to play him, it's so good because he's just playing Tommy Lee Jones. You recognize that. But um, this performance is excellent. And I think... It's it's just he's the only person for this role, and I think there's some really loving, tender things, and and what they do in the third one, the end of the the KJ trilogy, is set up really beautifully in this movie. So I really like it. I think it holds up great um, because the Men in Black aren't a government agency; they're an intergalactic agency. So yes, it takes place in America, and you could be like America, but it's not. It's not like the last movie where it was clearly America. This is like these are these aren't Americans. I mean, yes, the two that we're following are, but we see in Men in Black headquarters, we see other aliens, we see people from all around the world. So it's just it's just better. It's just a better movie. It, it is not a, a pile of jingoistic bullshit. Men in Black is a lot of fun. The soundtrack bangs. Men in fucking black. Up next is Saving Private Ryan from 1998, which went on to achieve a total worldwide gross of $481.8 million, according to Box Office Mojo. This is also another big awards winner, my second after the interminable Forrest Gump. From a total of 11 Academy Award nominations, it received 5, including Best Directing and Cinematography, more of which later. At the 71st Annual Ceremony, held in March 1999. It lost out on Best Picture to Shakespeare in Love. Evidence, if any was needed, about the inherent triviality of awards. I mean, who made the most lasting cultural impact ultimately? Private Ryan or Shakespeare? Admittedly, it is not the most cheery of some affair, opening, as it does, with a truly intense virtuoso depiction of the first wave Omaha D-Day beach landing from a soldier's eye view. The sheer level of filmmaking craft and verisimilitude in this scene alone altered filmmaking forever and has, arguably, yet to be equalled. This is both a good and a bad thing, as the film struggles to live up to this opening for the remainder of its two plus hours. It's probably been a good 15 to 20 years since I last saw this in its entirety, and as a father of two boys now, the scenes of the Ryan brothers' death discovery and telegram delivery to their mother hit me hard and arguably with just as much impact in their own way as the preceding concussive 25 bullet and bomb blasting minutes. Something that struck me this rewatch was the all-star cast, with many actors using this as a launch pad onto other more notable roles. Of course, there's those with big parts such as Vin Diesel and Barry Pepper and Adam Goldberg and Giovanni Ribisi, and Jeremy Davies, and Mad Damon. But there's also those with less screen time, such as Nathan Fillion, and Paul Giamatti, and Corey Johnson and Max Martini. Plus, blink on your missing cameos from the likes of Andrew Scott, and Ryan Hurst, and Brian Cranston. War. 
What is it good for? Launching actors' careers, it appears. There's much to celebrate about Saving Private Ryan. The acting is uniformly excellent. Williams' score is typically stirring and sweeping. Spielberg directs with assured aplomb. The undoubted star of the show, though, is cinematographer Janusz Kaminski. He'd worked with Spielberg before on Schindler's List and the Lost World Jurassic Park and Amistad, and has continued to work with him again and again and again, in a collaboration that continues to pay dividends for each individually and both together. But there's an argument to be made that Kaminski has never been better than this. It's a bravo a career calling card as he controls camera moves in production and colour desaturation in post that felt fresh and experimental at the time of release and still holds up as a paragon of what to reach for creatively now 20 plus years later. He set the standard visual language of what war should look like on screen that has been imitated and emulated ever since. The film isn't perfect. It runs a little long and tests the patience for the final against all odds action scene. And whilst the wraparound framing device does add some requisite pathos, the opening closing focus on the bleached flag is a little overly patriotic for my tastes. Of course, this span up into the 10 episodes Spielberg and Hanks produced Band of Brothers miniseries that is, arguably, even better than his already pretty fantastic film. Think of this as a four-star general that introduces you to his troop of exceeding expectations five-star flawless soldiers. That's 12 plus hours of top-tier content well worth your viewing time. So, pay it some attention. Up next, I get to review Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. Us as a certain age will remember when the film was released. It's pretty much seared into our memories forever, but for, for consistency's sake, let's reiterate that it was released in 1999 and it had a total worldwide earning of over 1 billion. Now, I am not going to rip into this film, it has been done a million times before. This is not my favourite film, <laughs> I don't love it. At this stage of my life, I will just say this film, it is what it is. Like, let's all move on at some point. I'm not going to sit here and ridicule it. As tempting as that is. And also, this film is cherished for some people. So, you know, I've got to be, I've got to be fairly chill about it. But the main thing I took from watching it is that it wasn't unpleasant. Sure, it's slow and clunky. The dialogue is ridiculously painful. The characters are unformed. Uh, boring that it's pretty racist at times and that unsurprisingly hasn't aged well the visual effects are super pretty but I hate them I mean they're stunning but I hate them the original trilogy feels so lived in and I hate how shiny and untouched everything feels in this film as I said all the characters are boring nobody has any personality I do enjoy going oh Kira Knightley um, and even though poor Natalie Portman has to deliver a lot of bilge in this film I do love her and I just I would pretty much watch her in anything so you know that's fine I got some some joy out of that so overall this is a pretty lukewarm review and I haven't even put down any solid thoughts because that's what this film is it's nothing it's all over the place it's such a mess like what is it what is happening but what I will say is do you know what I did afterwards I immediately put on Attack of the Clones 
like straight afterwards. I'm not going to analyse too closely what that means. What I will say in defence of this film is there's a great far-out magazine article that argues that it deserves a bit more respect than it gets, and I've included that in the show notes. They've got far more intelligent things than me to say, so go and read that. Up next is Mission Impossible 2 from the year 2000, which opened with 57.8 million and went on to achieve a total worldwide gross of 546.4 million, according to Box Office Mojo. Now, I'm not a big fan of the term guilty pleasure, but look, I know this first franchise sequel has its detractors, and some of the criticisms levelled at the film are perfectly valid, but I'm not one of the vocal critics, as even an uneven John Woo film always has enough elements to woo me into appreciation. For starters, Jeffrey Kimball's cinematography is as gorgeous as its two leads, Tom and Tandy roaring up the screen and offering early 2000s Fraser and Weiss stiff competition for hottest on-screen couple. It's arguable that Cruz has never looked so cool as he does here too. Hans Zimmer's soundtrack is also superb, perhaps one of his best, and yes, I am also a fan of Limp Bizkit's Take a Look Around, new rap metal Mission Impossible theme remix too. Life is a lesson, you learn it when you're through. The action set pieces are, of course, balletically and operatically choreographed. This is a woo movie after all. More on this later. These reasons alone are easily enough to be cheerful with the existence of Mission Impossible 2, irregardless of what you think about the drawbacks present in the film overall. It is a movie of two halves, the first hour made up of weakly scripted machinations that amount to absolute bunkum and literally develop the plot, not a job. This gives way to a blistering hour of woo-tastic balletic action in its second half, as Cruz's hair flicks his way through a series of escalating set-piece scenarios, each one carrying at least a trace of earlier, harder, boiled Hong Kong John Woo efforts, such as two-handed gunplay, slow-mo diving through the air, fluttering birds at all. The chief reason to celebrate Mission Impossible 2, though, is obviously Cruz's desire and dedication to complete his own death-defying stunt work, which arguably originated here through free climbing and knife-close calls, and has since graduated to halo jumps and six-minute single-breath underwater sequences, as seen in his most recent Impossible missions alone, not to mention zero-gravity falls and G-force dogfighting shenanigans in other star vehicles. We also shouldn't forget that we'd never have had Hugh Jackman as Wolverine either if it wasn't for this film's reshoots and the need for the production to hold on to Diggory Scott, as he'd have reported for X-Men duty as originally cast. I'm actually sure Scott would have been fine. He's no Hugh Jackman though, and it's arguable that Wolverine wouldn't have hit the zeitgeist in the same way if things had stuck to the original casting. I have a personal connection to this second impossible mission, just as I do with the original. For this one, it was promoted at a time when, for me, the internet was becoming an everyday source of film news, thanks to websites such as comingsoon.net and Ain't It Cool News. I must have watched the expertly cut and scored trailer for this dozens of times. The novelty been able to do this whenever I wanted, by paying a visit to my uni campus library, never wearing off. I know kids, the internet's amazing, huh? Yes, I am that old. Take a look around the internet and find the original trailer. It's high art and sells the film expertly. 
546.4 million off a 125 million budget is an undoubted success in anyone's estimations. In fact, this was officially the most financially successful entry in the franchise until Fallout in 2018. It may not be the series' creative high, but it's an important beat in the franchise and Cruiser's high-octane career. Make sure you subscribe, because the season of summer blockbusters continues tomorrow with a look back at an animation that amassed ogre-sized box office takings, Shrek. This review will destruct in five seconds. Up next is Shrek from 2001, which went on to achieve a total worldwide gross of 484.4 million, according to Box Office Mojo. Mirror, mirror on the wall, what's the most overrated animation of them all? I understand the appeal of Mike Myers, and I've been a fan of his since Wayne's World introduced me to his party time, excellent, character stick stylings. He doesn't always hit a home run, but he always swings for the fences, and that level of total commitment should be applauded. I don't understand the enduring appeal of Shrek, however, and its over-reliance on immediately dated anachronistic pop culture references and nudge-nudge cringe-cringe attempts at rudimentary social commentary. I just can't work out why this was so successful and launched a thousand commercial merch product tie-ins but, if the general online consensus is anything to go by, I'm obviously the one who missed the memo. It's just not funny. Mize's Scottish stereotype was better in So I Married an Axe Murderer, whilst Murphy is simply Mushu Mark II. He took the money and yelled all the way to the bank. All things considered, I'd rather assume the original Amblin intention, starring a droll Bill Murray as Shrek, and Rye Steve Martin as Donkey. Lithgow's Farquad is the film's highlight in both performance and subtle joke. It's arguably the only one you get if you get it, whilst the rest hit you over the head like a pitchfork-wielding villager. Its plot is paper thin and rote, following the Joseph Campbell reluctant hero quest narrative without deviation nor innovation. Shrek and Donkey don't bond when they first meet, I wonder whether they will form an unbreakable bond by the conclusion of their quest. Shrek and Fiona don't see eye to eye when they first meet? Oh, I wonder what will transpire between them by the end. Meanwhile, its message is try and warn as it labours its way to the moral that you should accept yourself as you are and not want to change. No shit, Shrek. I don't want to burst your birdie, but we've experienced this animated lesson countless times before. Its overabundance of fairytale nods and Disneyland digs and data pop culture references fly by so thick and fast it's like one of those flip books that tell you a simplistic story in a few seconds flat. Perhaps let a joke land before you move on to the next one now? This scattershot approach works if you're Zaz level comedy geniuses but that ain't the quality bar you're getting here from the seven, seven credited writers. It's so confused and confusing. The script is leaden with clunky dialogue and ill-fitting crude, in every meaning of the word, attempts at humour that often border on the inappropriately bawdy and lewd. 
I'm no prude, but at times this veers into super bad rather than satirical swipe territory. In fact, the issues are innumerable, from concept up to decade later execution. It's a film designed and written by a focus group determined to desperately appeal to all four quadrants and include all the family rather than a writer's room trying to entertain and outlaugh each other. It's the analogue equivalent of those contemporary movie scripts written by bots. Buddy Road movie for the dads? Check. Convention of fairytale tropes for the girls? Check. Knights and fights for the boys? Check. Somewhat of a subversion of the classic princess character for the mums? Check. This exemplifies its detrimental lack of focus and scattershot attempt at storytelling appeal. Some of everything, but actually all of nothing. To use an overly exposed metaphor from the film itself, Shrek believes it's an onion with layers, whereas actually it's just the acidic middle that makes you cry as you endure the bitter experience. For me, Shrek is total dreck, and no amount of financially successful sequels or innumerable spin-off shorts or interactive live-action adventures or ogre-sized IP profits can convince me otherwise. I'm a non-believer. Because I saw this dross. Now I'm a non-believer. Not a trace of doubt in my mind. I'm at a loss. I'm a non-believer, I couldn't like Shrek if I tried. Up next is Sam Raimi's Spider-Man, released in 2002, and it had a total worldwide earning of $821 million. This film still rules. Go and watch it. Don't bother doing anything else. Go and watch it. It's awesome. It's fun. Cast is perfect. It's cute. It's sexy. It's... It's... I've already said fun, actions, perfect, directing's lovely. Why am I still talking? Go, stop listening to me. Go put it on. Watch it now. This film is ace. Go watch Spider-Man. Up next is Finding Nemo from 2003, which opened with 17.3 million and went on to achieve a total worldwide gross of 940.3 million off a 94 million budget. The fifth full feature animation from Pixar and the first to be released in the summer season, Finding Nemo didn't clown around, swiftly netting cinema success as the numbers testify, but it remained in the zeitgeist, going on to be one of the biggest selling DVDs of all time too. It's a tried and tested buddy comedy adventure, and while Ellen DeGeneres' Dory stole all the headline plaudits for her unforgettable performance, Albert Brooks deserves his dry due, especially considering he was a last minute catch after co-director Andrew Stanton decided he wasn't satisfied with William H. Macy's completely recorded performance. Of course, as per usual with Pixar, it's some of the supporting performances that actually steal the show and make returning to the aquatic adventure such an endurable rewatch. Take, for instance, the righteous surfer Dude Crush and his totally rack offspring Squirt who travel the ECU. Or... Jeffrey Rush's Nigel, the clumsy pelican, or Brad Garris' aptly named Bloat the Blowfish, and Alice and Janney's observant voice of reason, Peach the Starfish, the two finest features within the dentist's fish tank. Speaking of which, the next time you watch Nemo, because, let's face it, there will be a next time, 
make sure you pay attention to all the Pixar Easter eggs scattered around the dentist office, including a Buzz toy, a Mr. Incredible comic, and Boo's mobile from Monsters Inc. hanging from the ceiling. I'm sure there are many, many more. Only their fifth feature, Finding Nemo is nevertheless still one of Pixar's finest. As a production company, their quality is consistently high and has been from Toy Story to Turning Red and Beyond. So, Pixar, just keep producing, just keep producing. Up next, I get Shrek 2, released in 2004 and having a worldwide gross of around 920 million. What do I have to say about Shrek 2? It's okay. You know, I'm not as I'm not as against it as Jack was about Shrek itself. I think it's pretty it's it's pretty average. I really liked the opening. I thought the opening was was fun. I thought, oh yeah, this would be a fun romp. And it turns out it's actually pretty boring. There's it you know, I like what it's trying to say about being yourself. Um, not having to be the pretty prince and princess and I think that's really important for kids so I'm really pleased that's uh, that's in there but as a as an adult none of the jokes really land um, the story's pretty boring and bland I've really got nothing to say I'm trying my best I've even got some notes but the notes are a bit like this film's kind of boring but it's alright it's not that bad so I guess I'll leave it there. I think if you're going to watch a series with kids, an animated series, and you don't want it to be Pixar or Disney or whatever, Shrek's all right, isn't it? Kids will hopefully enjoy it. Although my mind didn't enjoy the first one. They found it incredibly boring. Uh, and you, they'll be entertained. You know, there's ogres, they fart, they burp, hilarious, all of that sort of stuff. But they're just Okay. They're not as great as I remember. And that's how I feel about Shrek 2. I think I pretty much enjoyed it when it came out. And now it's, uh, it's a bit of a slog. But it's all right. 2005. Star Wars Episode 3 Revenge of the Sith. Released on May 19th. $380 million. Just beating out um, War of the Worlds is the summer blockbuster because Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire and Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe all came out at the end of the year. So, Star Wars, Episode 3, Revenge of the Sith. Does it stand up? It does. It does. Look, it is the best of the prequel series. It has the best lightsaber fight. Hands down, hands down. Hayden Christensen, still bad. Jar Jar, whatever. Say what you want about the prequels. There's problems with them, but they are all... Look, people listening to this within the sound of my voice, if you're flipping around the TV and the prequels are on and you're just looking for something to watch, you're going to stop and watch it. Once a year, you watch all nine of them, or now it's 11 of the main ones, if it's Solo and Rogue One. You watch them anyway. It's good. It holds up. No, it's bad. Okay, look. You can't get past that. Hayden Christensen is a drag on this movie, but the movie itself is very good. It's Obi-Wan's movie, mostly. Ewan McGregor is great. Um, I love it. I love it. I really do love Revenge of the Sith. I don't hate the prequel trilogy like everybody else does. I think they're fine. I don't think they're great. I think they're fine. Because this one is great. 
um, you know, you've got a good one, you've got an uh, one, and you've got a great one that makes them all fine as a, as a trilogy. But this is a great movie. I mean, just as as a movie, it has everything you want. It has action. It has drama, romance. I don't know. Well, we'll let whatever. But look, this bangs. This is the one. Star Wars, Episode Three: Revenge of the Sith, best of the first, hands down, holds up. Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man's Chest. <sighs> it was released in two thousand and six, and somehow had a total worldwide earning of earning 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 of about one billion. It's the follow-up to Pirates of the Caribbean, Curse of the Black Pearl, which, as we know, was a surprise for everyone and is still incredibly enjoyable. This film, however, I hated this film. It's boring. It's overlong. It's overly complicated. And Johnny Depp's performance is so irritating that I found him pretty much unwatchable. Now, as I said, you know, Curse of the Black Pearl, I've actually watched it fairly recently and I enjoyed it. Uh, Depp's performance in that film is refreshing and different especially for somebody whose overall body of work is as patchy as Jack Sparrow's beard. Um, but it doesn't translate into this much longer film. He's just a caricature of the character. He's so flipping, irritating, and pointless and stupid. I, I hated it. And there's this sort of love triangle between Elizabeth, Will and Jack, and it's just icky. It's gross. It doesn't work in the slightest. None of the actors are invested in it. It's horrible. And then we get the action, which is boring. There's this whole set where they run around each other fighting all over the place and they're fighting over Elizabeth and their own honour or whatever. I don't know. It's just dull. And I actually felt offended for Kira Knightley that she has to sit at one point in the sand just pouting and flapping her arms about. Why would you have this character, Elizabeth Swan from the first film, who becomes tough and interesting? Well, I mean, she's interesting to start with, but, you know, she she grows over that first film. And this film, oh, it just really irritates me. I was really hoping for some spirited, whimsical fun when watching this film. But instead, it's just a flaccid mess. And it ultimately ends up being obsolete because of the end. So what's the point of this film? Why does it exist? Money, money in shitty Johnny Depp performances. I'm just not here for it. And and the franchise for me all goes downhill from here. It's so bloated. And this is the start of that. It takes the spark, the interesting thing from the first film and just poops all over it. Oh, it just makes me so sad. Oh, okay. There's got to be one highlight. What what is that? I, the visual effects do continue to be amazing. And for me, that's the only an interesting complex thing in this whole film. I could just sit and watch Davy Jones's face tentacles all day. Um, in fact, there's got to be a making of that I can watch. I'm just going to go off and find that. Up next for me is 2007. The film is, get ready, get ready, Spider-Man 3. That's right. Released May 4th raked in a grand total of $333 million, just beating out Shrek the Third. Ugh. Shrek the Third. Um, look, Spider-Man 3. What can we say about Spider-Man 3? <sighs> it's bad. When you compare it to Spider-Man 2. The problem is nothing could follow Spider-Man 2 and be considered good. Is it the worst movie we've ever seen? I don't think so. Is it the worst of all the Spider-Man films? Yes, I think it's worse than both of the Amazings, without a doubt. 
obviously into the spider-verse is the greatest spider-man movie ever made um you know and i like the the new ones i like the john watts trilogy very much um but you know the john the third john watts one works because they they go back right and you you, they they don't pretend that spider-man 3 didn't exist right sandman is in there and look say what you want about the bad dance or whatever i toby it's not toby's fault toby did everything he was supposed to do he showed up he acted his ass off in spider-man 3 everybody performed i think this is one of those sony got in the way like sony gets in the way and so is it good no should you watch it again you should you should watch it again you should always watch spider-man 3 again it's worth it's worth your time it's worth its weight in gold maybe and i guess i mean you know 336 million i mean it was the number one summer blockbuster i mean and it beat out shrek the third book and transformers was out there pirates at world's end harry potter that harry potter came out in july instead of november born ultimatum i mean these are monsters these are banger movies that like historically now people are saying oh you know at world's end or order the phoenix is definitely better than transformers or you know shrek the third shrek the third sucks there's no doubt about that uh, i'm kind of glad i didn't this wasn't number one because then i would have had uh, uh, i don't know if i would have bothered spider-man 3 though you should bother it's not good but i say it's more fun and then you should also go listen to megan lose her mind reviewing it over on uh genuine chit chat that is maybe the best thing about spider-man 3 dark knight released in 2008 with a worldwide earning of over 1 billion i mean let's be honest who the hell cares how much this film made it's amazing i keep on getting films that are too good to say anything new about which on one hand is frustrating but on the other hand is fantastic because I just get to watch them and enjoy them and it's that's the best thing ever. So I'm pretty certain I've had the best bunch of the films this time round for this season that we're doing. Can we all recall the freaking Halloween Friday the 13th bullshit? Um, anyway, this is possibly my favourite Batman film. The Dark Knight is just perfect the pacing's perfect you know i obviously have nothing new or interesting to say about Heath Ledger's joker the score is perfect maggie gyllenhaal does a good job in a pretty thankless role way way better than poor katie holmes who was just completely lost in the first film and it's a film that you watch as soon as you see it come on it's classic it'll be on tv you go i'll just watch the opening and by the way i've watched the opening of this film probably over a dozen times and you go, well, oh, yeah, I'll just, I'll just sit and watch the opening because it's so good. Oh, it's so tense. And even though you know what's happening, you just love it and you're just completely drawn in. And then you just sit and watch the whole damn thing throughout. Like, it'll be like 1am, still watching it. It's amazing. Once again, why are you sat here listening to me or jogging or probably, you know, I don't know, staring into space or doing the washing up or whatever? Stop listening to me. Go and watch this film. It's amazing. Up next is Transformers Revenge of the Fallen from 2009, which earned over 60 million on its first day and went on to achieve a total worldwide gross of 836.3 million off a 200 million budget. I genuinely like the first Bayhem Transformers movie. It's not without its flaws, but it does somehow straddle the divide between Bay's patented spectacle and Spielberg's typical sentimentality. He's a producer here, with some success. LeBeouf has become a controversial figure since, but he's at his charming every team best at this point in his career too, 
providing a human centre amidst the alien robot carnage. Whilst, although obviously objectified, Megan Fox manages to bring layers to her character where many other Bayhem eye candy leading ladies have failed. But I'm not here to talk about the first Transformers, I'm here to talk about a sequel, Revenge of the Fallen, which is a robot sized step back in quality, and sadly, there's no disguising it. I appreciate that it was affected by the 2007 to 2008 Writers Guild of America strike, but that doesn't excuse what we got. Did Lifelong and newbie fans really deserve as shoddily assembled a screenplay as this? Who's to blame then? Screenwriting trio Archie, Kurtzman and Kruger? Well, they handed in their treatment before the strike began, which Bay then expanded into a 60-page scriptment. So, Bay? Well, his scriptment was then given back to the trio to finish in time for production. So the trio then? Who knows? But the upshot is a script that fails on almost every level. It's unnecessarily convoluted plot-wise, but predictable and rote in its developments. The comedy falls flat almost every time, especially when delving down into the toilet and juvenile end of the spectrum. Characterisation is off, and the actors know it too, which subsequently affects their level of performance effort. This is most especially evident through the treatment of Megan Fox's Michaela. She has zero agency in this. As opposed to the original, when she had plenty to balance out Bay's idiomatic veer factor. Rewatching this, all I wanted her to say was, Stop taking my hand! to her various boy saviours, a la Rey in The Force Awakens. As for the bots themselves, none of the new additions add anything. In fact, they only take away, and, at times, actually offend. For instance, see Skids and Mudflap for uncomfortable stereotyping. Isabel Lucas's continuity-smashing, seedily shot, shape-shifting Decepticon assassin. Whilst the least said about Devastator's robot gender signifiers, the better. The visual effects match this weaker characterisation. I don't know how, with 50 extra million to play with, everything looks worse than the original. It literally makes no sense. Not that any of this affected the film's financial success, as the cachet of the original and the IP franchise drew audiences back in droves to such an extent that although Fallen lies third in the all-time worldwide box office after Dark of the Moon and Age of Extinction, it actually holds the record for highest US domestic gross to this very day. So who's to blame? Bay? The writers? Producer D. Bonaventura? Circumstance? Us? The audience? Not demanding enough from our blockbuster film creators? The answer is ultimately elusive, as the issues behind this film is more than meets the eye. Toy Story 3 is up next. It was released in 2010 and had a total worldwide earning of over 1 billion. What is there to say about this film? This film's so good and it holds up. That's what we're supposed to be judging, right? Some of my reviews have gone a bit off topic because I'm just either excited or I hate it in this film you watch it again and it still feels as fresh and as enchanting and magical, emotional it's such a wonderful story about love, all the different kinds of love we experience through our lives love and lot, loves and lost you know, losses is what I'm so saying, I'm just so engaged with this film, I can't even think of my words you know, it's poignant this film 
It's my most favourite Toy Story film. It makes the Toy Story trilogy, and I'm not counting the fourth film, but don't like it, it makes the Toy Story trilogy one of the best trilogies out there, without a doubt. And it's because of this film. Like, the other two are great, but this wraps it all up perfectly, and it's what we've been here watch- for watching the other two films. It it ends it on how we felt when we first started watching it, and then we started growing up. Say, I'm using the royal we, you know, I'm nearly 40, so... I've been there for the journey with these films. I can't imagine being a being a kid getting to watch these three in a row. That must be one of the most exciting things ever and just living through these toys' lives. Just wonderful. And there are multiple gut-punch moments in this film, good and bad. And it's hard to think of when another film's done that. It's a story about toys, but it's not. It's a story about love. Again, I'm so lucky with the films I've got. Why are you listening to me? This is how I'm going to have to sign off every one of them, isn't it? Why are you listening to me? Go and watch it. Go and experience the magic of of Andy's toys, of Andy growing up, of other children whose whose lives, of other people whose lives we touch in our own lives. Oh my God, I don't even know where this is going now. I'm completely off script with my notes. Um, Go watch Toy Story 3. It's awesome. 2011, Harry Potter's and the Deathly Hallows, part Two, released on July 15th, so it meets our criteria. It beat out Transformers Dark Side of the Moon, which is where that movie should have stayed. Harry Potter raked in 381, Transformers Dark Side of the Moon 352, rightfully so. This is the end of the Harry Potter movie series. They split that last one into two because hashtag cash in cash, cash, cash. And then you think back and you're like, man, you could have split four into two. Four is the best book, but arguably the worst movie. Six really should have been split into two because while the movie is the best movie, in my humble opinion, it really doesn't address the things that the book does. It's like a fun romantic comedy. And the book, while it has some of that, is not a fun romantic comedy. And you're like, you get to the end, you're like, Half-Blood Prince, why does that even fucking matter in that movie? But this, Deathly Hallows Part 2, this is the big explodey fight scene, the movie. Is it well done? Yes. Is Daniel Radcliffe a good actor? Eh, he's fine. I mean, he got better, obviously, as the thing went on. He doesn't, he's got to do lots of fighting and wand work in this. And obviously, um, Ray Fiennes is awesome as Voldemort. And, and it's what it is. I think it totally holds up. This isn't one you can kind of watch out of context. I know it's also part two, but like you could, if, you know, Chamber of Secrets were on or, you know, Half-Blood Prince Ron, you'd be like, oh, I'm going to watch that. But part two, Deathly Hallows part two, it, it is a true part two. It is truly the second half of one big movie. So this is one that you can't just turn it on and watch. So that doesn't work as well because it is so tied to its previous movie where the other ones are all kind of, it begins and ends stories. This one doesn't. It's a true part two. So, you know, that year, the Twilight Saga Breaking Dawn Part 1 came out, too. So it was just the thing everybody was doing. We're just going to turn all our movies into two movies. I don't necessarily know that we needed to do that um, with the Twilight movies, having only seen half of the first one. So who am I to say? I thought it was pretty crappy, and I couldn't see a goddamn thing. So I didn't bother to continue to watch. But um, this one was really good. And I do actually think the Harry Potter films would have benefited from getting the extended 
treatment like doing they did what Jackson did with Lord of the Rings, just filming the whole thing, or what Coppola did with The Outsiders, filming the whole thing, knowing that sometime later we'll release the longer cut. I think the other films would have benefited from this two-part treatment, and then this film should have been released as one film, knowing that part two, like the longer movie, would have been a DVD thing, and you would have boosted DVD sales or whatever. Back when people bought, still bought DVDs. But anyway, it's very good. It's fitting end. I'm a fan. Um, so, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2. Watch it, but make sure you watch Part 1 first. 2012, The Avengers, which has been renamed Avengers Assemble. At the time, it was just called Avengers. It came out on May 4th, so just squeaked in, raked in $623 million, just beating out The Dark Knight Rises, The Avengers Assemble, as it's been renamed. Um, Still my favorite Avengers movie. Still the best Avengers movie. Come at me. At me, people. Does this stand up? It totally stands up. Um, I I understand people love Endgame. I don't love Endgame. It's fine. I think the other three Avengers movies are all a little samey. Obviously, um, people will shit on the second one. And again, it's not as bad as you think it is, and I don't think Endgame is as good as everybody thinks it is. But I am not here to shit on Endgame. I am here to praise the original Avengers. It was a big undertaking, and he who we do not be named did a good job with it. It's just a fact. He's a giant cockface. We can't deny he's a giant cockface who also happens to make really good, big, big, explodey movies. He makes really good big explodey movies that's what he does he writes funny dialogue he's a cock i'm not defending him he's a cock avengers assemble the avengers is really good though um i remember when they made the change from ed norton to ruffalo i was a little pissed because i really like ed norton's hulk i like the original hulk though so i'm in the minority of liking hulk movies um He's good. Ruffalo's fine. He does what he's supposed to do. He's charming and affable, and he's all those things. It's obviously Robert Downey Jr.'s movie, um, but it's very good, and so it holds up, and I would rewatch this one all day long. If it came on, I would stop what I was doing and watch it. Uh, so, excellent Avengers. Mm, pretty good. 2012. Nice work, 2012. Up next is Iron Man 3 from 2013, which earned over $1.2 off a 200 million budget, outgrossing both of its predecessors combined. I enjoy the first two Favreau-helmed Iron Man entries well enough, but don't hold the original in as high a regard as many other MCU fans seem to. Therefore, I found this fresh direction for the franchise to be a welcome shot of extremists to Shellhead's overarching story arc. The opening movie of Marvel's Phase 2 it remains one of the more divisive and controversial MCU entries thanks to its twisting of classic villain, the Mandarin, subsequently retconned in one-shot All Hail the King and Shang-Chi. Nevertheless, despite this specific pushback from a certain section of fandom, Iron Man 3 obviously went on to become a massive financial success. Much of this can be attributed to the enduring appeal of Robert Downey Jr. as Tony Stark, Therefore, it was wise of writer, director, film friend Shane Black to delve beneath the iron suit to the mechanic Tony that wears it. I'm a massive fan of Shane Black, enjoying almost all of his creative output, and consider Lethal Weapon and Kiss Kiss Bang Bang especially amongst my favourite movies of all time, so was predisposed to preferring his talky take on the titular character. 
Black writes characters like nobody else. His, some might say, altruistic stylings might not be to everyone's taste, but they are to mine. He leans hard into noir tropes, with his scripts an endless supply of killer quips, buddy bants, self-aware voiceovers and complex mysteries. Iron Man 3 is undoubtedly of a piece amidst his neo-noir, Christmas-obsessed, pulpy detective filmography. Noir is an anagram of iron, after all, so trust Shane Black to capitalise on that fact. For me, this is easily the strongest solo entry for Iron Man, and a top-tier, single-character-focused film when stacked up against the rest of the MCU, whatever the phase. It's fast, funny and flashy. And you know what? That could be an alternative name for Tony Stark's autobiography. Up next is Guardians of the Galaxy from 2014, which saw Marvel top the summer blockbusters list for the third year straight after The Avengers and Iron Man 3, earning $773.3 million off a $232 million budget. This was a real swing for the MCU at this point in Phase 2. The Guardians were a relatively obscure set of characters and even lesser known amidst comic book reading fans. Not to mention the cosmic nature of the story, which, despite the presence of space god Thor, had been fairly muted up until this point. Enter James Gunn, to produce an end product better than any film about a half-terran cross between Han Solo and Indiana Jones, a walking thesaurus, a talking tree, a green-skinned warrior woman, and a bad-tempered raccoon has any right to be. I remember the first time I watched this and the moment I knew I was gonna fall in love with it. The film had revealed its surprisingly emotional opening before cutting to Star-Lord entering the cave on Morag. He puts on his headphones, then suddenly the scene cuts to a wide shot to reveal the film's title in classic yellow exploitation font, the perfectly cast Pratt boogieing away in miniature amongst it. Oh, be still my beating heart. I've lost count the number of times I've seen Guardians of the Galaxy. It must be half a dozen, at least. There's so much to admire, so much to explore. It bears repeat viewings. Every joke still lands. Every emotional beat pulls on a heartstring. Every character is worthy of fronting their own galactic adventure. At the centre of it all though, is the man, the legend, Andy Dwyer, aka Johnny Karate, aka Burt Macklin, aka Chris Pratt. Dream casting is another case of perfect actor for the role on the part of Marvel. They do take risks with their leading men. They always pay off though. In the case of Peter Quill, he's another in a long tradition of leading men in adventure movies that have no idea what they're doing, but seem to be able to charm and improvise their way out of any tight spot. Think Indiana Jones. Think Malcolm Reynolds. Think Jack Sparrow. But obviously only in the first parts of the Caribbean. Star-Lord is the same. He has that effervescent, knowing, cultural quality to him that appeals to the wannabe hero in us all. I don't understand the backlash against Pratt as a performer or a person. Perhaps it's just because we like to tear people down after we've seen them achieve success. I don't subscribe to this behaviour, nor the negative opinions on his portrayals. Gush over. Speaking of gushing, yes, a CGI raccoon and a stick can make a grown man cry. I'm not sure which I like more, the film itself or its soundtrack. Whichever way it falls, 
Both have had multiple, multiple plays since James Gunn unleashed a superior slice of sci-fi upon the MCU. We are Groot. Today, I'm reviewing Jurassic World. Released in 2015 with a total worldwide earning of 1.7 billion. I think this film sucks. I don't like it at all. Didn't from the first time I watched it. And I didn't watch it. I didn't like it. Couldn't watch it. Well, I didn't watch it since. And I've watched it for this. And uh, I am not a fan. So I'm going to start with the positives. The things I did like. Possibly the only thing I did like. And that's not me even being hyperbolic. The introduction to the park with the kids is great. It looks beautiful. The music, the score throughout is, of course, fantastic. And that's about it for me. Things I hate, everything. Um, But specifically, why do kids have to be in peril for us to be invested? I hate it. It's stupid. It's dinosaurs attacking people. There being kids related to the main protagonist doesn't need to be a thing. It works well in Jurassic Park because that film is well written. In this one, it's just shoehorned in. I mean, I'm not going to start talking about what's so good about Jurassic Park. Go listen to my other review. You'll hear it all there. Um, And it's the only way the main female character can show growth by caring about some kids. Such bullshit, because women aren't real women unless they give a shit about kids, right? Because she's competent at her job. I mean, sort of. Doesn't have, but doesn't have her own family or is in a relationship, uh, so she's not a good enough female character. Is that right? Oh, I mean, everyone's complaining about her running in heels. Please, women can do extraordinary things. We can run in heels, be on a night out. Ugh. But you know, she can't be great without giving a shit about some children. I hate it. That's my biggest thing. Uh, in general, I just think the whole thing is muddled. The different strands of groups of people and their motivations and then the dinosaurs uber dinosaur none of it works for me at all it doesn't work together it's not coherent it's like this i've got one great idea for a cool dinosaur for a set piece for somebody can control raptors all of this sort of stuff and then junking it in one film it's just rubbish it's supposed to be an homage to the original right but even though it's copying some of the beats it just forgets what makes jurassic park special And even though Jurassic Park is basically about people moving from one place to another, it's done well, it's well written. And we all know I love that sort of storytelling, by the way. Mad Max, Shory Road, hello. Um, You know, but it weaves in all of the other other, uh, themes. This film, it doesn't do it. It's just, oh, cool action, let's go do this. Mm, That's a funny line. Chris Pratt is kind of funny, so let's do that. I did like Chris Pratt in this film, actually, to be fair. That's another positive. They go, I love Bryce Dallas Howard in anything even if she's giving a shitty role. So great. I liked those two as well. There you go, let's end on a positive. Up next is Finding Dory from 2016, which netted Pixar a little over $1 billion worldwide, according to Box Office Mojo. Dory may not make plans, but Pixar do. And they plan to continue flooding the market with not only the best original concept animations, but sufficiently competent sequels too, replete with existing character growth and new character charm. This is the Pixar way. Long may it continue. As creatively competent as Dory is, it isn't as fresh as Nemo, whilst the escalation and high concept action events in the third act of this film do become a little far-fetched. I know that sounds a little silly to say in an animation about talking fish, but you know what I mean. What is key to why the sequel is a success to file alongside Toy Story 2 and Incredibles 2 more on which in two days time, is its continued focus on character development driving the story 
not the story featuring previously popular characters. The hook and the shifting of focus onto Dory is much more than just because she was the breakout star of the original. It's that there is an actual story to tell that features her regal blue yang as the protagonist. One way Dory definitely does match up to its predecessor and where the sequel shines brightest is when it's focused on its supporting cast of aquatic creatures, most especially Ed O'Neill's cranky Septopus Hank, Caitlin Olsen's nearsighted whale shark Destiny, or Ty Burrell's echo-lost beluga whale Bailey. I'd watch a threequel about finding any one of their scene-stealing characters any day. In fact, I'd argue they deserve a threequel much more than we needed a fourquel focused solely on Woody. Up next, 2017. Now, the summer blockbusters, remember, come out from May 1st to Labor Day. So, it was not Star Wars Episode Eight: The Last Jedi. It was not Beauty and the Beast, both of which outperformed the summer blockbuster. The number one summer blockbuster of 2017 was Wonder Woman. Came out on June 2nd, raking in $412 million, beating out Guardians of the Galaxy 2 rightfully so, and Spider-Man Homecoming. Also rightfully so. Kind of loved Spider-Man Homecoming, but Wonder Woman. What can we say about Wonder Woman except, holy shit, I cannot fucking believe it took this fucking long to make this fucking movie. Gal Gadot, I always say Gadot, but she says Gadot, so we're going to say it the way she says it. It's her name after all. Holy shit. Oh my god. She is Wonder Woman. I mean, she's not tall enough. Okay. I remember when they cast her. I was like, ugh, she's not tall enough. And then I saw her as Wonder Woman. I was like, holy fucking shit. Holy fucking shit. I, look, the big fighty fight scene at the end does not stand up. Those big fighty fight scenes in every superhero movie just fucking have to go do something different. Yes, you have to have a big fighty fight scene, but in the middle of this movie... When she comes up out of no man's land and you see the costume for the first time, that big fighty fight scene is fucking amazing. Oh my fucking God. I love this movie. And the best thing about it is the this time when Diana and Steve finally decide to get together. All they do, they shut off a light. There's no side boob. There's no butt cheek. Nothing. They're just like, we're going to get it on and adults get it and kids don't. Wonder Woman. So fucking good. Oh my god. Up next is Incredibles 2 from 2018, which earned nearly double its predecessor 14 years prior, accruing $1.24 billion worldwide. A sequel to my personal favourite Pixar production, 14 years in the making. Before its release, I just hoped this would be good. Do you know what? It's not just good, it's super. It was at risk to pick up immediately where The Incredibles left off. The inbuilt, impressionable, youthful audience would have moved on. 14 years is a long time. They would be young adults. Would they still want to see these characters stuck in a state of arrested development? Yes. Yes, they would. Especially when the concept and execution is this good. The superhero genre had also proliferated popular culture by the time this sequel arrived on the screens. The original was ahead of its time in its meta superhero commentary. This was deep in the zeitgeist. Its focus on the family dynamic and the stereotypical gender switched roles was an absolute masterstroke too, in line with current cultural movements. 
It was essential that the brilliant Brad Bird was the mastermind behind the Incredibles' belated return, as were the vocal contributions of returning cast members Holly Hunter, Craig T. Nelson, Samuel L. Jackson and Sarah Val. The additions of Bob Odenkirk, Isabella Rossellini and, especially, Catherine Keener elevated it even further. The most important reprised element, however, had to be composer Michael Giacchino. His toe-tapping score for the first film is one of the best of all time as it mixes 60s jazz stylings with spy riffs and superhero bombast. It's incredible, and his work here matches his previous effort. For my money, he's the best in the business. My only minor criticism would be too much focus on the slapstick exploits of Jack-Jack at the expense of superior siblings Dash and Violet. I mean, I get it. Cute kid equals merchandising moolah, and the Jack-Jack attack short attached to the Incredibles DVD release was superb, and for me, reminiscent of the traditional animation opening to Who Framed Roger Rabbit. But some of the best moments in the original Incredibles featured the squabbling siblings and the coming-of-age subtext that underpin the surface superheroics, and that's missed here. I'm also still waiting for some Bon Voyage additional material. I'd watch hours of Looney Tunes style heist gone wrong featuring his Complètement Ridicule character. Are you listening, Pixar? Make it happen, s'il vous plaît. 2019! Now, you're like, 2019, it's Avengers Endgame. Haha, you would be wrong. Because Avengers Endgame actually came out on April 26th. So this is not Avengers Endgame. The actual summer blockbuster that came out between May 1st and Labor Day was the remake of The Lion King. It came out on July 19th. It raked in $543 million, beating out Toy Story 4. The new Lion King can go fuck itself. That is the whole review. Now, 2020 is a weird year because there were no summer releases. So, number one movie of the year was actually released in January. It was Bad Boys for Life. And then, by the end of the year, 1917 came out. And so, there are no summer releases. So, according to the list that we're using, the first movie to really kind of come out after lockdown season was Tenet. It was released on September 3rd. It raked in a grand total of $57 million, according to Box Office Mojo. So it's a weird one, because what, what would it be? We have no idea. So that's why there are no summer blockbusters for 2020, and Tenet is the first release post-pandemic, but of course the pandemic is still going on. So anyway, Tenet. What can I say about Tenet other than Holy shit, Chris Nolan can turn down the goddamn music. Hold on. All right, that's better. Listen, Chris Nolan turned down the music, man. That is one of the biggest problems with Tenet is his sound design. And I know it's intentional and it's supposed to be that you're not hearing anything. This is definitely a movie that 
would benefit from seeing it on the big screen because it would look beautiful because there's beautiful people doing things and it's, you know, bondy and actiony and mind trippy. But then the sound quality is so fucking awful and it's so fucking annoying that when you watch it at home with the captions on, you're like, oh, that's what he's saying. I have no idea because it's as you as the example previously showed. So not great, not great. Um not great that way. But the film itself I actually enjoy quite a bit. I think the performances are really good. I think John David Washington is the fucking star. Um he is a charming protagonist of that there is no doubt and I have no doubt that he will be winning awards much like his father. He will be a big big star, but I feel like he's going to do stuff like this. I think he's he's probably going to go down that path if he's always going to be the guy who's in the movies that get released in March or September or October. I don't ever see him becoming like a big tentpole true summer blockbuster guy. So I think this is probably John's only chance to be in an air quote summer blockbuster and it really isn't even one. But I think Tenet is worth watching. I think it's worth watching two or three times and I know everybody's like, fuck you, I shouldn't have to listen. I shouldn't have to. I shouldn't have to watch a movie two or three times to get it. I get that. But I, this is this is rewards. So the first viewing is not terrible. It's not like you hated the first viewing. It's just it takes you a while to get there. So um, I like it. Tenet, just turn down the goddamn music, Chris. So here I am. The final review, I think. Black Widow. Released in 2021 and with a total worldwide earning of 379 million i mean yes clearly it's me doing it the final one because i've just said it was released in 2021 who knows the pandemic happened who knows when anything was released so hmm where to start i'm not sure how long this review is going to be because i am disappointed in this film scarlett johansson and natasha deserve more than this This has only been my second watch of it because I don't know why I would subject myself to the disappointment more than once. Again, where to start? All right, let's start with Black Widow as a character, right? Black Widow is one of the most interesting characters in the MCU. She has no superpowers. She's trying to do the right thing. She's possibly too good at what she does and has to hold herself back. She doesn't want to scare the boys. Um, She's smart and she uses those smarts well. Well, Let's not talk about how previous directors just sexualized her rather than focusing on her intelligence that Scarlett Johansson was able to bring through multiple times in multiple films. Um, And she gets shit done. You know what? Competency is sexier than skin-tight cat suits. Just an FYI. She has a trauma-informed past, which isn't something I tend to love. People aren't solely defined by their trauma. Hello. But then again, nearly all of the other Avengers do, so at least they aren't singling her out as a woman with trauma. Um, and I'm not saying anything original here by saying that she is more than she appears in many, many ways. So we finally get the long-awaited Black Widow film. And we're going to get to explore all of this, right? That she's an interesting character and all of these things happen to her. And, and look, we know she's dead, which don't even get me started. One of the major female characters in MCU sacrifices herself for her boys. Oh, my God. And I've just watched Multiverse of Madness, so I'm fuming over Marvel and how all women are mothers and maternal at heart. It's just bullshit. Come on. Let's... 
ugh, this is not what I'm here to talk about. Anywho, the film opens strongly. I am a huge fan of the TV show The Americans, so I was all in for this at the opening. And then seeing how Natasha becomes a black widow, cool beans, on board. But that's it. There's, there's no more of the actual interesting stuff. Nope, it's just explosions, chases, robot things, women in tight clothes because assassins. This is all such bullshit. We know there are excellent spy dramas out there. I mean, there's one in the flipping MCU itself. But we also know that there's ones that have women in lead roles. Hello again, the Americans and Salt, which if you haven't seen it, what are you doing? Go and see Salt. It's amazing. This could be films about Natasha's rich and complex history. It's about her and her sister, how she joined S.H.I.E.L.D. and the Avengers, her relationship with the family, her relationship with, with Russia, her homeland, and with what happened to her. Again, but not trauma-informed. It could be about her internal conflict, how she sees her place in the world, whether that that place works for her or not whether she wants to be in that world what does she want what does Natasha want do we ever get to spend any time thinking about what she wants in any of these films in none of them even in this film you know and what was her actual cold hard motivation on why she would sacrifice herself for the world and for the Avengers for you know for her team for her found family oh my god we could have just explored found family she has like a million found families amazing let's talk about that but no this film is just an afterthought and we all know why and that's what pisses me off and there's some interesting stuff in there some joy kernels that kate shortland and jack shafir have truly clearly tried to bring into black the black widow story they seem to understand what's interesting about her and to me it's obvious that they haven't had much control. It just has to fit into the Marvel formula. So why bother getting them in to do this? Just get a freaking middle-aged white man to do it. Um, I just... But okay, some good stuff. Scarlett Johansson, I do love her. When she has a good director and good material, she kills it, doesn't she? I mean, (laughs) she, she has a good director, I would say, in this film. Uh, whether the material is there or not, I think we all know how I how I feel. And she's brought so much to the role of Black Widow within such tight constraints. And as always, you can tell she is trying to bring it in this film. Speaking of bringing it, Florence Pugh, one of the most interesting actors working at the moment, who is also bringing it in this film because she is a goddamn professional. But this is what she gets, right? I just, I don't understand. There's multiple films for male mcu characters just give yelena her own film introduce her in this hawkeye is not yelena's story it's called hawkeye i've seen that argument online it's pissing me off it's called hawkeye um i just the back and forth between yelena and natasha is great the family dynamic is great you can tell everybody working on this realized that those four actors had the best chemistry so why is this constantly interrupted with shooty blowy uppy things just constantly and not a normal amount it's actually constantly there's so much action pointless action poorly thought out action in this film and they're trying to tell us that Elena's different from Black Widow right that she's not all sexy superhero with her poses but this is Black Widow's film why are we focusing on Elena again it's her long overdue film as I just said give Elena her own film and just make this Black Widow, I just... And that's the other thing. Okay, so I guess final thoughts, I should wrap this up because this is not the length of a song. Maybe it's the length of an Explosions in the Sky song, which, fair enough, those songs are awesome and really long. Um, Just watching it, I think my biggest disappointment is that there's nothing special about this film. 
is not here to mark the first heroine of the MCU. It's here to plug a gap. It's here because they feel like they have to, because they released a Captain Marvel film and there was still no Black Widow film. They had to, not because they wanted to. And to me, that's stamped all over it. This film is an obligation. And so they've just shoved it in the same formula as one of their mediocre outputs. And that's bullshit. And it's too little and too late. I'll wrap it up there. Make sure you subscribe, because you never know when the gorillas will strike next. <laughs>